And um, it is our delight uh, to not only sing praises of the goodness of our God in, uh, in Jesus Christ in saving us, uh, to declare those things even in the, in the prayers that we make and uh, lifting up our circumstances, our joys, our delights, and our praise for who our Lord is, um, but also to look to his scriptures. And so we are going to turn back to the book of Job this morning. And uh, today we will finish what we began last week. And I, I, I wasn't very economic with my time. And so uh, we are finishing up uh, Job chapter 19. Um, now this is a, a number of cycles. Remember Job, unprecedented suffering, right? And even when we say I'm having a hard time and I'm suffering, I doubt that we would, we would dare to suggest that our suffering is in the magnitude of that which Job experienced. He lost everything in a day, literally everything in a day, from you know possessions to family to children to future to, to health. Everything was all taken away from him. And as, as, as he suffers, uh, three friends came from distant lands to comfort him. And for the first week, that's what they did. They just sat with him. They, weeped over him. they wept over him. They, they joined in his sorrow, a tremendously um, powerful and excellent ministry um, of just presence. And then they started to examine why would something like this happen to you, Job? And so the few things that we have mentioned that I want to reiterate is that you notice that regardless of which friend it is or Job himself, in any of the dialogues that they have with back and forth with each other, nobody denies that this is God's hand. You guys need to understand that. Their theology is not so wickedly off that they're just talking nonsense like Job, you know, the universe is just like that, and she will create all kinds of havoc in your life. No, there's none of that nonsense. They're all God believers, God followers. They know who God is, and they know that God is so sovereign that whatever comes into our life, God has ordained this. And that's a word that we need to hear, and we need to speak to one another regularly. Because you might be going through some stuff that's pretty tough right now. Or you might be going through a season that is particularly blessed right now. Regardless of what on that spectrum you're going through, you need to know this. That God has ordained this. And you are exactly where you're supposed to be in the course of your journey right now. That doesn't mean that it's picture perfect. That's not, that's not what you sign up for. right? When you become a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not to say that you are insulated from difficulties or anxieties, from fears or for failures. You're not. That's not what you get. That's not the great reward of becoming a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ. All it means is that because God is still God, there is room for us to think even in the worst moment of our lives that there is hope. Does anybody else hear a weird like electronic bug? Right? I don't know what's happening with that. Um, but the point is that God being God is the very help that every believer in any generation, it's how they make it through suffering. Suffering is intolerable if there is no God. If there is no one actually in charge. Then it's just random. And bad things happen to everybody. 
And it just, that, oh, too bad. That's, I guess, that's the bad luck that happened to you. You're going to get cancer and, um, you know, sorry, you live a short life. We'll see you later. You know, that's what happens. The universe just kind of falls apart like that. Or God is in all things. And if we could find our faith to believe that there is a God, that, is he, that he is in charge, <coughs> it may be the most significant and most difficult part in the midst of our suffering, that he is for us. That's how we make it through. That's how you make it through. And this is Job. In the midst of one of the, the most tragic stories that we have ever heard in human history. And here are his friends now kind of becoming his verbal combatants. They're challenging him and they're saying, Job, there is something that you're doing wrong. And you notice that there is this pattern, right, where Bildad is a little bit more kind of pastoral. He's trying to encourage Job to think and, and to consider where he may be doing wrong, right? And then we have Bildad in the middle, and Bildad is more kind of like, hey, listen, like, um, let's just analyze this. He's the traditionalist, and his whole thing is, what have we seen in the past? Well, bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. You must be in this category. You now you could slide over. Let's get sliding over, right? And then we'll see Zophar, and Zophar is a little more strong, and he's like, you're a bad dude. And this is what happens to bad dudes. You might have a chance. You might not have a chance. I'm just telling you. It's my job to just warn you. Right? And you guys probably all have similar type of friends, neighbors, right? Um, Family members that fall into different kind of personality traits similar to Job's friends. Well, these are his friends. And we had just finished, right, uh, the second statement, the second dialogue in the second round of these three friends. Bildad had just spoken and basically let Job know that Job, one, you need to shut up and listen because you are calling us, um, you know, fools and you are actually the fool. That's one. And then he gives him an entire sermon on what happens, what is the path of the wicked. This is what happens to wicked people, Job. They will be darkened, right? All the light, life, knowledge, truth, it's all going to just fade away. They're trapped. They're sinners, and the sin keeps trapping them, and they kind of see it, and they know that they're getting drowned in it, but they just kind of continue on. They can't escape. They'll be terrorized, meaning that there's always anxiety, fear, pain. It stretches on and on, and it's like an endless sea of terror that will plague them, and they will understand what it means to be fully abandoned. All right, all the loved ones, all the friends, all the comforts they find in relationships, those will all be faded and gone. And so we turn to chapter 19, and this is Job's response. And I love chapter 19 in the book of Job because it's one of the most personable ones. It's Job just kind of, right, because a lot of times Job is pushing back and saying, I don't know why you're accusing me of this. It's not true. I've examined myself, and this is not what what it is. I I, I know that this is the hand of God upon my life, and I'm telling you, I don't know why. I expect that such a thing would be punishment for sin, but I can't see it. I don't know it. I, I, my conscience is clear and I can't figure out why this is happening to me. So he's usually pushing back. But here, he just speaks openly. And he just lays bare his own heart. 
at how difficult this is. And there's, there's two major movements in chapter 19. And uh, your last week's outline will be different because I kind of reduced it, made it a little less cluttered for you in just two things. And it's Job's confession of pain, verses 1 through 19. We kind of looked at that, so I'll rush through that part. And then Job's testimony of hope in verses 20 through 29. Let me read all of 19 to you, and then we'll pray, and then we'll unpack this. Job chapter 19. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourself against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and a camp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. His, my, my relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I must stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we look at Job chapter 19, We'd like to lift up, Lord, the hearts of many that are struggling now, whether it's because of um, physical trial, um, maybe relationships that are broken, uh, maybe circumstances that are outside of their immediate control, um, whether it be direct suffering, whether it be emotional anguish, whether it's, it's just spiritual depression, whatever might be ailing us, give us a moment, Lord, to recognize our weakness and our need for a Redeemer, for someone to rescue us. 
And I pray that in this entire um, congregation, Lord, as we gather around your scriptures, as we sing your praises, that there would be a humility that falls upon each hearer's heart. That hears the word of God and understands that it is God that is at the center. Not even a man, a historical, real, actual, and godly man that suffered so greatly. His story we relate to, Lord, because he is not different from us. But help us to be like him and in the darkest moment seek to find something that is significant and stabilizing and sure in the rock that is our God. I pray for our thinking of you. I pray that that would be what is transformed and ignited for your purposes, for your glory, and for our good, for our sanity. So that we might believe that there's something greater than just the simple pleasures and accomplishments of our lives. There is a God. And we desire to serve Him now and unto eternity. So we ask for your grace in our hearts to receive the word implanted that we might strive to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we are here in chapter 19. And like I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rush through because we did already unpack verses 1 through 19, Job's confession of pain. But we just, we just want to recognize how difficult his circumstances have been. Um, first, he has been tormented, verses 1 through 6. Job answered and said, how long will you torment me? Break me into pieces with words. He is saying that his friends have been pounding him with a verbal assault. That, and it is just him being honest. He feels like he's just breaking down and he's being torn apart because of the words, right? Sticks and stones. That's not true, right? Sticks and stones can hurt you. That's true. And words can hurt you. And this is Job saying that my accusers torment me. And the interesting thing is that he directs them to recognize and to agree with him that is not in him, Right? You can torment me and accuse me of everything, but I have not done any of the things that you are thinking in the back of your minds that I have done. Instead, you should direct your eyes to God. And that's why in verse 5 he says, If indeed you magnify yourselves against me, make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong. God has placed me here in this difficulty, and he closed his net about me. Secondly, we said that he talks about how he has been torn down, particularly torn down by God in verses 7 through 12. Behold, I cry out violence. I'm not answered. I need help, but there's no justice. And he talks about how God walls him up. Verse 8, he set darkness upon his paths. He stripped him of glory, taking off his crown. He breaks him down on every side, right? His hope has been torn up like trees. And then verse 11 and 12, he talks about how God's wrath is against him. He's his enemy. And he says, it's like God right, assembles his troops to come gather together around me. They cast up siege ramps against me. They encamp against me. They attack me while I'm in my tent. Right? This is him trying to say that, that God doesn't need to do all of this. He has more than enough to come against him. And yet he is tearing me down in a way that makes me feel like he is, yeah, I'm enemy number one. And third, all right, not only tormented, torn down, but forsaken. And I, I'm not sure if he's going in order of what is most 
I don't know, painful to him. But in his confession of pain, he ends up in verses 13 to 19 talking about all of his near relatives or his friends or his family. He says, brothers are far from me. Those who knew me are estranged from me. Relatives have failed him. Close friends have forgotten him. Guests that were in my house and the maidservants that took care of me, they all treat me like they don't know me, right? My, my servant, and this probably suggests that his number one servant, right, that he calls by name, he won't even answer, and I have to plead with him for mercy with my mouth. My wife, you know, doesn't want to smell my breath, right? My children, think I, the children of my mother, probably talking about his siblings, they, don't, they, don't, they think he stinks, right? Young children despise him, um, and I rise, and when I rise, they talk against me, like the kids make fun of me, right? My intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I have loved have turned against me. So this is Job just confessing the pain. This is what he is experiencing. So this is far beyond just the circumstance. He's saying, this is how messed up my life has gotten. And he's confessing that openly. Because they keep coming at him and saying, Job, don't you realize how bad your life is because God is mad at you? And Job is saying, yeah, I recognize it's God and I recognize everything is bad. And this is how badly I feel about it. I feel tormented, torn down, forsaken, lost abandoned. I, I feel it. I feel the weight of it. That's our human crisis. Right? The vast majority of everything we do as a society, as a people, and as individuals is to try to avoid these very things. The torment, the tearing down, the forsakenness, being abandoned. I mean, we are doing everything we can to secure. That's the term we use for happiness, right? We secure a happy existence. And by that we mean we protect ourselves from tormentors. That we keep ourselves from being torn down. That we try our best right, to, to salvage and to keep those that are like us and that are for us. And that we are not abandoned by those that should love us. And if any one of those things are messed up in your life, that influences you and challenges you and is a pain that you bear for all of your life. Isn't that true? If you had a father or mother who was not a good father or mother, that, that sticks with you. And I'm not saying that's an excuse for how you, but it sticks with you. And this is what Job is trying to say, that these experiences of being forsaken, abandoned by those that should love him, that should help him, those, those friends that should be good friends, they're now accusing him of being some kind of a wicked sinner hiding in the shadows, right? All of that is killing him. And so as he expresses this pain, where would he go? What does he do? And what makes him Job the virtuous and godly man. We can say that because God himself says that Job is upright and good in the beginning of Job, right? And then Ezekiel, at least a couple of the prophets, consider Job to be one of the, the most godly and holy men, right? The most righteous men of past generations. Job goes down historically in the scriptures as well as in the writings of uh, the students of the Old Testament and the New Testament as one of the most godly and righteous and, and upright and holy individuals that we have met. Where does that guy go when everything has fallen apart? And I think that's where we turn, right? When we look at not just Job's confession, but his testimony of hope. Verses 20 through 29. And this is where we're kind of, uh, we're kind of um, hunkered down and try to get a little closer to, to what, um, 
um, what encapsulates uh, Job's faith and faithfulness. In Job uh, chapter 19, starting in verse 20, the scripture said, My bones stick to my skin and my flesh. It is an interesting statement, right? I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. I, I think that's the phrase where we get that idea that, you know, oh man, I escaped by the skin of my teeth, right? And, and it, even in the Hebrew, it's an unusual phrase and one that is very difficult to translate because part of it is it doesn't make sense, right? It literally says that bones stick to skin, right? That's not the way that, that anywhere else in the Hebrew scriptures or in Hebrew writing that they talk about like, physical ailment like we might say that our skin sticks to our bones right that other way around kind of like oh man that guy's all skin and bones right but nobody including us uses that phrase backwards and says bones stick to my skin unless we got some exoskeleton or something right mr crab man right like bone sticking to your skin is not typical and then even the idea of escaping by the skin of my teeth your your, your teeth got no skin right so again, these, these are almost nonsensical statements. And so scholars have struggled to understand what they're saying. And I think that our mistake would be to emphasize the idea of escape. Job is not emphasizing that, oh my goodness, I, at least I'm alive. Like I barely, you know, escaped, I scraped by. I think instead, I think he's trying to emphasize that physically speaking, he is broken. Right? Whatever it means that I am skin and bones or bones sticking to skin or whatever you know, way we want to express it. Or whatever it means that, that, that he has survived in just skin and teeth. I think his whole point is my, I'm ruined. Job fully expects to die soon. We have that in his other statements to his friends when he says that Sheol is an open bed and he's waiting to kind of lie down finally and be done with all this stuff. It's like he anticipates that he's going to die. And so as he comes to his friends and as he recognizes the pain of his experience, he is saying here, not so much that, man, I'm so glad I've escaped. He's saying, look, we both know I'm done. I'm at the very end. I am broken and there is not much more for me. And so by saying that in verse 20, he's about to plead for compassion in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends. For the hand of God has touched me. Two times he repeats for emphasis, have mercy. The term means to give compassion to do something by way of mercy or something that they may not be fully deserved but is helpful to those that are in crisis. And he's saying, don't you see what's happened to me? I am just skin and bones. My life is going to end soon. I'm on my deathbed or my death pallet as I sit here on the ground. Cast a little mercy my way. You are my friends. Say something kind because it's going to be over soon. This is him pleading for compassion in the very moment of, of recognizing that it's all going to pass. I find it interesting that Job reminds them of their sameness. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, oh you my friends. And to be friend means that we are similar in some way, that we connect to each other relationally in some way. And he says, for the hand of God has touched me. In other words, we are not that dissimilar. 
And that God that is the great God, he's the one that has cast this misfortune upon me. So he goes on in verse 22 to say, Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Meaning, why aren't you just satisfied that I'm going to die? Like, if you're that mad that I have done some sin that I completely disagree with you about, right? I'm going to die. So, you know, you're going to get your wish. Justice is already happening according to your view of my life. And it will find its sure mark in a short amount of time. But you are my friends. You are not that different from me. And if God is the one that's touched me, why are you joining him to assail me? Why are you joining him to pursue me? Why aren't you satisfied with the fact that I'm going to die? This is my end. And this will be your end as well. To be clear... God is the providential, right, sovereign God that has allowed this to fall into Job's life. But the direct agent of every affliction in Job's life is Satan. Right? We know that. Satan's the one that, that says, you know, well, actually, God's the one that instigates and says, have you considered my servant Job? Right? And Satan's the one that says, well, I mean, you keep blessing him so much, then of course he worships you well, you know? Like, you, you remove some of that. Let's see if he's a real worshiper. And he, he, he's certain that Job is going to fail. And God says, okay, you could do whatever you want. And so Satan does. So Satan is the direct agent. God is the sovereign Lord. And in his direct agency, I find it interesting that for the religionists, the rigid, structured, self-righteous friends of Job, Satan is an afterthought. They don't even bring up Satan, Right? Interestingly enough, in kind of an offhanded way, what you start to realize about their theological concept of God is God is similarly absent. You say, well, they talk about God all the time. They do, but almost like he's a clockmaker that has set in motion a certain universe with certain rules of righteousness, of certain rules of you do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. He's kind of set that all in motion, and then he's just distant and gone. The supernatural sense of evil, the supernatural sense of sovereign goodness, is kind of in the background. I find that tremendously interesting because, see, this is where Job is struggling. There is these two tensions. He knows that God is God, that he is in control. That he's absolutely sovereign and he is the ultimate reason why I am suffering because he has all things in his knowledge and all things happen according to his declarations. But then the other side of the tension is, but God is also good, isn't he? God is for me, isn't he? See, and that's us. Anytime that we struggle with what is going on and our inexplicable, our inability to explain, right, what is happening in our lives, it is always a question of, is God in control? And most of us theologically answer, yes, this is from the hand of the Lord. But then the second part, is God good to me? Meaning, is he on my side? Is he for me? And that's where we go, yeah, theoretically he is. But not in this instance. And that's where Job is. He's saying, friends, join me in supporting and having compassion on me because it feels like God is not for me. That's where he's struggling. 
It's a plea for compassion, but then that leads him to then a declaration of, of who God is, regardless of the suffering that he has brought. Job wishes that someone could step in between him and God. Right? He expressed that back in Job 9, 33, when he says, there's no arbitrator between us who might lay his hand on both me and God. All right? Let him take his rod away from me. Let, it, let the dread of him terrify me. Let not the dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. He's saying, I wish that there were someone that could come in between God and me and would be an arbitrator for us so that I may speak. He appeals for their pity. And then he expresses his hope. He expresses his hope. Verse 23. Um, this is probably one of the most, uh, verse 25 and 26, probably the most famous passage or verses in the book of Job. Um, and you will often read, if you're reading like especially kind of the, um, the, the more technical commentaries in the book of Job, a lot of uh, these, um, uh, these scholars will say, man, it's a terribly difficult verse or verses, verse 25 and 26 about my Redeemer lives, etc. Terribly difficult um, to interpret. Which is kind of true and kind of not true. All of Job is difficult to interpret. It's Hebrew, right? And it's Hebrew poetry. Look, I have difficulty interpreting like English poetry. And I speak English, right? So you put another language and, 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 and poetry and all that. Yes, that is true that it's difficult to interpret. But I have a sneaking suspicion that the vast majority of those scholars that feel like it is so difficult to interpret is because they don't like the most sensible translation that falls out from what Job is saying. Because most of those excellent scholars are liberals. They don't think Job has any view of an afterlife. They don't think Job's view of God as Redeemer is that strong. They think that must come much later in the course of, uh, of uh, Hebrew theology and development. Right? But if you, take it, if you take your best shot at translating this, even in bad Hebrew someone with bad Hebrew like myself, I think you come out pretty much agreeing with the way that our modern translations put it. But we'll get there in a second. I kind of gave you too much. Too tantalizing, right? Let's go back. So here is Job expressing from his heart some of the deepest pains that he's experiencing. And as he does that, he's saying that there is still hope. There's still hope. And I think this is what faith under fire looks like. This is, this is what your faith looks like if you are trusting in the living God and in Jesus Christ for salvation. That you believe the things that you have heard from church and that you have read in the scriptures, that you have sung in the songs that praise the gospel of Christ, that you believe that God is in control and that your life is for a purpose and that you have been designed to glorify him. You embrace all of that, that joy comes in following God. You believe that and then the world falls apart all around you. What does the true character of faith look like when every comfort has been decimated? And I think it looks like this. I think it's like Job saying that, that, man, I wish God would change this. I wish you would change your tune. I wish that everything was different. I wish that I'd never lived. I wish that I could just die. And having said all of that, and some of it got probably going too far, Having expressed all that out loud from his difficult pain, he turns around and says, but there's some things that I know. And it's about who God is and who I am because of him. He begins by talking about 
you know, I wish the words would be inscribed. Verse 23 and 24. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Ding! Isn't that funny? It is inscribed in a book, right? And at the moment, he's probably thinking, man, I wish that the stuff I'm going through would be written down. And lo and behold, they are written down, right? They're inscribed in a book. And he says, oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they're engraved in the rock forever. In other words, I just wish they would be canonized. And, and God in his grace actually granted that wish. And they, they are. His words are actually canonized. But his point is that I wish there would be a permanent record. Now, I want you to keep track of this because the question is, why would he need a permanent record? Why would he need, need the, his words, his thoughts, and the struggles that he's going through and his affirmations inscribed in stone? He'd only need it if he's going to die. I said that he fully expects that he's going to die. He's already told his friends, be compassionate towards me. Be satisfied with my flesh. Meaning, I'm, I'm going to die. So just, you know what I mean? Like, just hang on, say something kind, hold my hand maybe at the end, and, and, and I will pass. And then you could think whatever you like. But he says here that my thoughts, my words, my testimony would be engraved. Why? Engraved in a rock forever so that after I die, it may be known how I thought about what was happening. It is an anticipation of death that he's saying, I wish that my thoughts, my feelings, my expression, who God is to me, that those would be engraved in stone. That's verse 23 and 24. And then what are these words? is expression of what Job knows in verses 25 to 27. Let me read all three of those and then we'll unpack portions. Verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. He, there's three things that he says that he knows. And so we could, we could think about this as three ways that, that his faith, right, um, still clings to his soul in the midst of this tragedy on his deathbed. He says, but I know this, right? I wish it was all inscribed. I wish people would know my story. But I do know this, even if, it, if, it, even if the story dies with me. He says, one, I know that my Redeemer lives. The term redeemer, goel, is something that we have uh, talked about before. If you guys have been here for a few years, well, we went through the book of Ruth, right? And remember, Boaz was her kinsman redeemer. Same word, goel. And you think, okay, so what is a goel? What is a redeemer? And what is a kinsman redeemer? It's all one concept. And uh, um, the beauty of it is that over the course of, uh, of, of Hebrew Old Testament um, vocabulary, this term for goel became right. what was initially a basic commercial and legal term. It's the person that redeems something or someone. You, you redeem coupons, right? You guys, you know, you guys do online shopping and you go, dude, hey, dude, I wonder if there's a coupon for this. So that's what, that's what Captain and I do. You know, we got to order something for the boys and then we'll go to that site. And before you hit, you know, purchase, you go, hmm. Let me just Google and see if, is there a coupon? Is there a digital coupon for this site, right? You do that. And then if there is one, then what do you do with that coupon? You redeem it. Commercial term, right? A legal term, a shopping term. That's exactly what it was. And so someone that redeemed something or some other person, 
that meant that they transacted on behalf of their advantage for their good. That began there as many of our redemption terms, right? Our, our you know, atonement terms begin kind of in the marketplace and then they end up being theologically very rich. Well, that's exactly what happens to this term goel. Redeemer was someone that was tied to you, right? Not just as someone that purchased your freedom or something, but it could be that. But it was someone that's tied to you by covenant or, or relationship. It was usually a near relative, and that's a come in the book of Ruth, right? We often talk about a kinsman redeemer. It's the same word. We could just use the term redeemer, but we mean kinsman redeemer, meaning that Boaz, right, was related, cousin or something, to Ruth's, you know, Ruth, I'm trying to get this right, Naomi, Naomi's husband, Right? They're either cousins or something. And so Naomi, her mother-in-law, she had married Naomi's son. And all right. So the point being, uh, this get really complicated. The point being that Boaz had a relationship. He was related to a certain part of the promised land that was be, supposed to be for the family that should go to Ruth. But someone needs to redeem that for her. And so Boaz in his righteousness, do you remember? He says, there is one kinsman, redeemer, that's closer. In terms of, you know, I might be a second cousin, there's a first cousin. I will go to him and tell him to redeem you. And redeem the land and redeem the line. And if he refuses, then I'll redeem you. That's the kinsman redeemer. Do you get that? So it's someone that is tied to someone relationally or covenantally. And as a result of that, they will stand for that person when they are wrong. Christopher Ashe in his commentary explains it this way. If you were murdered, your Redeemer saw fit that your murderer was punished. Right? So sometimes in the book of the law, um, he's called the Avenger. Assemble. Right? Is it, you, you get what I'm talking about, right? He's the one that will avenge you if someone murdered you. He, that, that, you know, that Goel would make sure that that justice is paid out. That is his, that is his covenant purpose as your Redeemer as the one that vindicates you, that rescues you, that stands in your place, that is your advocate or your avenger. Um, if you share in the promised land, if your share in the promised land was under threat, he's the one that safeguarded it. See, so that's why the kinsman redeemer can redeem that and reestablish the line of Ruth's husband and Naomi's um, father, sorry, Naomi's husband, Ruth's father-in-law, and keep that line going and take care of that. And lo and behold, that ends up being, you know, part of the line uh, that will um, be the birth of Jesus and, uh, and our Savior is born from the line that includes Boaz and Ruth. Nevertheless, right, it's the Redeemer that will protect that, that, that promised land for you, safeguard it. If you're a widow, if, if your widow was childless, he's the one that provided a child, either by adoption or by marrying her or doing something, right? This in every way, the Redeemer was the one that stood for you when you couldn't stand for yourself. He's your vindicator, your champion, your avenger. Do you get that? It's so much more than just the marketplace, although he purchased you, Right? That's great that he purchased you, but it means so much more. And so when Job says, my Redeemer lives, and he's saying, there's three things that I know. One, that my Redeemer lives. He is saying, my Avenger, my Vindicator, my Champion, the one that is for me, he is real and he is living. 
To say that someone lives is not simply to say that I think he has a heartbeat, doesn't do much, just watch the TV. No, he's saying that he is real. He is active. He has vitality and power. It's an affirmation that he believes that his Redeemer is God. He is in heaven and he has not forgotten about him. This is Job struggling, right, with that tension. God is in control, but it's God for me. And this is his affirmation, his conviction, his mind, his heart in stepping forward in faith and saying, but I know that my Redeemer is. He exists and that he is for me is what he means by Redeemer. He doesn't just simply say my God is that he is living, that is assumed by all parties concerned. He is saying that my God is for me. He is my redeemer, my vindicator, my justifier, my savior. And he's alive. And even if he doesn't feel like it sometimes, if he's like God himself is the one coming against him, he knows that God is the one that will rescue him in the end. This is what faith looks like. And this is where faith struggles. Because his genuine faith keeps coming out. His genuine theological conviction keeps bleeding out. God is against me, clearly. But then at the same time, God is absolutely for me. I love this expression. I know that my Redeemer lives. And then what else does he know? Secondly, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. This is an interesting statement. I mean, it, it is that he will stand you know, literally on the dust. And so almost certainly it's saying the dust of the earth, that he will physically be manifested in this world. And then notice that phrase, in the end. So that at the end of all things, there's going to be a time when that God is here. It's a declaration that when all is said and done, Job's Redeemer will physically be manifested and appear and give testimony to his innocence. See, that's the idea that at the last, my Redeemer, right, that he will actually show up. He will stand upon the earth. He will give testimony to what is good and excellent and right. He believes that his Redeemer will show up and will vindicate him when all is said and done. He will take the stand We use that phrase, right? Take the stand. He will stand upon the earth and justify Job. So better than a fading tombstone, you know, that has your epitaph, you know, that has something engraved upon it. Job is saying, I wish that my words were engraved, but better yet, I know that my Redeemer is alive. He is active. And in the end, he will stand here and he will give testimony. For Job and every believer before and after him, there is this divine redeemer there is this one that is come to rescue us and that will come back for us and vindicate us will establish us just and righteous and declare us good right in that future day see i I love it because for job he is looking forward with eyes of faith unable to, to decipher what that person would be like or what, uh, how God would manifest such um, a kinsman-redeemer relationship for him. But he knows that that's the God that he worships. He knows God is for him. He just doesn't know how that's going to flesh out. He doesn't know the name of Jesus. But we, New Covenant believers, we look at all of this, we look back and go, man, Job, if you only knew, if you only knew the full manifestation of God's love for you, 
You instinctively know that God is for you and that he loves you and that he would desire to redeem you and that he would, in the end, stand up for you. But we know it by historical truth that he sends his only son who lived a perfect life to die the death that we should die, to pay the penalty that we should pay. And so that if we have placed our faith and our hope and our purposes in him, we know my Redeemer lives. Even though he died on a cross, he was raised again. And that Redeemer will return one day and stand upon this world, this earth, and will declare us righteous unto eternity. He knows in the same way we know, but not with all the details fully kind of put in place. But he knows that his Redeemer lives. He knows that his Redeemer will arrive. He's coming. And then in verse 26, it says, And after my skin has been destroyed, yet my, in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. The third thing he knows is that he will see that Redeemer with his own eyes. See, this is interesting because he, said, he puts a strong emphasis on this idea of seeing God, seeing God, his Redeemer. He says first, After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And so, see, again, this is where translators find it so difficult to translate because he seems to be saying two opposite things. He's saying, my skin is going to be destroyed, and in my flesh I'm going to see God. How can he believe both of those things? Well, he believes that there is something that must come after his death. I have already told you, he is convinced he's going to die. He's begging for compassion for friends because he's going to be fated soon. And so when he is thinking about who God is, in that moment of clarity where his faith is fully expressed, he says, I know I'm going to see him. And not some, I'm going to be some mist, right? Kind of some universal glop that kind of generally thinks of something about God in me. He's saying, I'm going to see him in my flesh. But this will be after I've already turned to dust. I don't know that Job has resurrection ideas in mind. I don't know how thorough his knowledge of all those things are or any of our Old Testament saints for that matter, but he seems to have faith that something's going to happen and that his life continues long after this flesh is destroyed. So he says, in my flesh I still see God. I'm going to see him for myself as to double down. Not only will I see God, I'll see him for myself in verse 27. And then the second part of verse 27, my eyes will behold him and not someone else. It's not going to be like, you know, I kind of behold him through what you tell me. He's saying, no, I'm going to see him. I, my, my flesh is going to see him. My physical eyes will see him. It will be there. And my Redeemer God himself will arrive and I will witness it. It will be after his death. Otherwise, you don't need you know, to ask for your story to be engraved um, in stone or written down, etc. If you thought you were going to be alive. Job hasn't been anticipating, even from Job chapter 14, he says, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal shall come. He's been anticipating not just his death, but that some kind of renewal must take place. He believes that he will see his Redeemer. In the echo of that, we find in the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Remember in Matthew 5, he gives all these blessed are. This is the truly blessed man. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're poor in spirit. It's okay. You inherit the kingdom. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. You are mourning. You are in pain. 
but you will find true and eternal comfort. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Right? They seem so small and unspectacular, and yet the entire world would be theirs. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You want righteousness to reign, and God will provide that in full. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. They are kind, and kindness will be replayed on them ultimately. And then this one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, Job is convinced that he's going to see God. In the end, he can't, he can't change what has happened. He, doesn't, he, he wallows in it a little bit. Like, let's, you know, I, don't, I don't want to put him on a pedestal. He still has a sinful tendency. He's, uh, if Job does anything wrong, he's, he, he disproportionately kind of emphasizes his experience, as we all do, right? As human beings. I am one human being out of, how many human beings are there on the earth right now? Six billion or something? Seven billion? And counting? Is it, is it more? You know how many a billion is? That's a million million. I see, this still doesn't make any sense to me, right? I'm not sure I, if I've seen a million of anything. Like, I don't know what, I was trying to think in this, in this sanctuary, if we filled it with anything and it took a million to fill it, I mean, I'm totally guessing, so, you know, all you material science majors might know better, right? I was a poli-sci major, so I don't know none of that stuff, right? But I imagine that something, you know, a little tiny pebble, like maybe like, I don't know, three or four centimeters, right, um, in diameter, like a million of those, would that fill up the entire sanctuary? Let's just, let's just for the sake of argument say that it would, right? So let's say that a million sanctuaries this size, a million sanctuaries this size, right? A million. Is there a million sanctuaries this size in the world? I don't know. But a million sanctuaries that size filled with those little tiny pebbles, that's one billion. And there's like seven billion. Six billion? Seven billion? Five billion? It's billions of human beings. And the, so there's me, right, in one pebble amongst billions. That's just people. And then you take the entire world, every animal that is in it, every, every you know, scary animal and every cute animal, right? And then, and, then, and then plants, things that have some kind of life, but they're not really life. We just eat them, right? It's like they don't, they don't feel it. They don't have no nerves, right? Like, or just, just created beautiful things. So the entire, the entire world and everything in it, amazing. And then it turns out, that that world is in this solar system that is quite average, not particularly spectacular. Not all the universe is like, oh, I wish I could be a solar system like that solar system. They're like a who, right? And then we're in a galaxy that is mid-size. It's literally mid, right? Yeah, it's mid. It's all right. It's not greater. It's not lesser. It's just, it's just so-so. And you expand that by billions of galaxies. And then, and then allegedly the universe might even be expanding still. And in all of that, there is all of that put together. And if you are to categorize all the materially known and unknown stuff in the entire universe and all of its grandeur, there is a God that literally snapped his fingers and it came to be. Okay, he didn't snap, right? Thanos snapped. God doesn't need to snap. God just literally thinks it out loud and everything happens. So for any one of us less than pebble, right, 
less than universe, less than galaxy, less than solar system, less than planet, less than people. It's a, and we get all the way down to us. For me to go, man, God needs to explain himself to me. I think that's where Job has kind of gone a little bit wrong. All right? But not so wrong that I can't say I have been there. Right? Um, we have all been there. And we find ourselves always disproportionately thinking about the entire existence of the universe and who God is in relationship to me, myself, and I. But Job, he is saying, and despite all of his failings, despite all of his discomforts, despite all of his pains, despite all the, the torment and the difficulties that he's facing, he's saying, I just know this. I know that God is my redeemer. He's not just God. He's my redeemer, that he lives, that he will arrive. I know that he is coming, and I know that even if I die, I will still see him one day face to face. And in the end of it, he's saying, my heart faints within me. And that's an expression I'm not sure what he means. We know what he says. And I'm not sure he means like, so my, my heart's going to stop and I'm fine. Maybe that's what he means. Or if he means, I, I can't take it. Like, this is too much for me to hold. Right? This is beyond what I'm capable of knowing and appreciating and living rightly in. I don't know. But his whole point is that he puts God at the center of it when he is thinking right. I have a Redeemer. He is real and living. He is on his way. I'll be there when he arrives to rescue me, even if I die. And the vitality of his faith is not dependent on him and on him being the focus of this existence and universe. Is entirely focused on who God is. Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says this. While Christianity was able to agree with pagan writers that inordinate attachment to earthly goods can lead to unnecessary pain and grief, right? There's a lot of, you know, like, Buddhist, other secular writers, they, they, they would agree with that, that uh, unhealthy attachment to earthly goods can lead to unnecessary pain and grief. He says Christianity agrees with them about that. But he says it also taught that the answer to this was not to love things less, but to love God more than anything else. It's not detachment that Christianity teaches. It teaches that there's a new and greater attachment. There is a redeemer that we are attached to. Only when our greatest love is God, a love that we cannot lose even in death, can we face all things with peace. Grief was not to be eliminated, but seasoned and buoyed up with love and hope. See, the book of Job is mischaracterized as trying to solve the question of why there is suffering in the world. That's not, that's not the book of Job. The book of Job is a declaration that suffering can go beyond the scope of our imagination. It could get really bad. But that the faithful keep referencing God and in so doing they find a stable platform that doesn't mean that grief goes away it means that it is slightly seasoned or buoyed up it is held in a way that cannot exclude love and hope this is the lesson for our suffering that we are not alone all right we aren't abandoned not if we believe in Jesus Christ that we are not forsaken but he holds us in his hands. That God is indeed on our side and the evidence of God being on our side is that he sent his own son to pay your penalty so that you might be his. 
This is the faith of Christ. This is the faith that we have in Christ. And it's our hope for vindication. It's our hope for redemption. There's a short warning that I want to go through in this last part. And um, just because it's part of the narrative. But I want to return back to this um, before we conclude. And to this uh, thought of our Redeemer and how God is central to our suffering. Verse 28 and 29 is a warning to his judges, right? He says this, if you say, how will we pursue him? In other words, you get together and you're like, dude, man, we are going to pursue this fool, right? And they say the root of the matter is found in him, meaning we are going to figure out what secret dark thing he is hiding from us. This guy is not getting away with this. He he says, if you're going to approach me that way, he says, be afraid of the sword. It says, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. What he's actually saying to them is, is kind of in our, in our idiom, the sword cuts both ways, right? Like if you're going to come at me with that kind of judgment, know something, that the judge is actually a judge. He will weigh all things. And if he finds out that you are after something that is not true, if you have accused me of something that is not accurate, if you have unduly right, judged me in ways that are not helpful and good and according to God's exact definition of what needs to be judged, then you're the one that will be judged. And we have that repeated by Jesus in Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. The sword cuts both ways. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Yes, there is a lesson for us to learn from Job's kind of not, they're a little less faithful friends, right? But there's more of a lesson, and this is where I want to end up with us towards the end. A lesson for us in Job and his faith. Job asserts that God is the one who has brought every calamity into his life because could, could God stop it? Could God instantly heal you of whatever ailment you're struggling with? Could God cause that relationship to flourish and everything be okay? Could God change everything, right, that is causing you distress and pain and fear and anxiety? Could God do it in his sovereign ability? Absolutely, without even thinking just barely thinking. God could just decide that that's, that's, that's what happens. Jesus literally healed human beings by saying, oh, your daughter's sick? All right, she's okay now. That was it. He's like, well, don't you got to like spit on some mud and rub it in her face or something? Like, what is happening? Jesus healed in so many different ways just to prove that he wasn't bound by some formula, right? And in that same way, God could remove everything from you. So he's sovereign. He could remove all that stuff. And Job asserts that God is the one that has, has, has determined this for Job's life. He's correct in that. But when you catch him in that moment of worship, when his heart is right, he will also affirm that God is still for him and that God will fully redeem him. He is both, God is both capable of bringing righteous judgment and of removing wrath from us. If you think about that idea itself, it's like, how how is that possible? And it's at the end of Romans that the gospel makes it clear. Romans, 20, Romans 3, 21 to 26, and that kind of close us off with this passage as we think about um, 
what it means for us to have God as both just and justifier. Now the righteous, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are, listen now, they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption, that Redeemer that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins, but He can't just pass over them forever. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just, perfectly righteous, demanding full payment for every sin, and the justifier, the one that would give us a means of being forgiven of that sin because someone else will pay it. He is both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Listen, if you are going through some suffering right now, you need to hear this. That there is a Redeemer. And He is your Redeemer. And in the end, He will stand up for you. And though this difficulty may even go so far as to take your life, that's not the end of your story. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you will stand in that day glorified, declared righteous, and embraced by your Redeemer. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the offer is invalid. God needs to be at the center of any and every suffering that we face. The book of Job is not a lesson on how to overcome every suffering. It's not. It's a lesson on faith and how to understand who God is and how to look to God when we can't figure everything out. And it's not weird that we can't figure everything out. It's not weird that God doesn't tell us everything. We are this speck in, you know, millions and millions and billions and billions of specks in this world. And in this world, one of trillions and trillions and infinite numbers of worlds and and galaxies and solar systems and universes, right? He is God. And all of that combined and multiplied several times cannot measure to who and what He is. He has everything in His control. But He is for you. And even if it doesn't feel like it, how do you know? He sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross so that you might be forgiven of those very sins that you and I know that you're guilty of committing. That is a redeemer. And that is a good redeemer. And that's the Savior that we have and that Job anticipates. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message that comes from this book. Not, not just that there is suffering in a broken world, I think everyone in this room probably experiences some version of that or will. But that there is hope beyond this world. And there's hope beyond this this life. And there's hope beyond even the, the four corners of our own mind. There is a God who is in control. And though He does not explain to us why He does what He does every time, He will redeem us. And He offers His salvation for us. So may each person in this room, Lord, explore out whether or not they are walking in faithfulness to that living Savior, to that Redeemer who lives. And if they are honoring the name of Jesus Christ 
with their lives. We praise you and thank you for our time of worship this morning and ask that you would bless our way to walk in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.